Greetings. It's a delight to be here. Um, I think it's, um, I feel especially privileged because Stuart could easily have done this sermon, but <laughs> he uh, gave me the opportunity of coming along and um, I'm very grateful for that. Uh, I've been to a couple of the other services today and I have to say 7pm are the most enthusiastic singers. Pat on the back, guys. You are amazing. I really enjoyed that before. Uh, <laughs> um, I am going to uh, talk about uh, different aspects of work. Um, I know that last week Stuart sort of touched on the good of work and the bad of work. I'm going to fill in some of the details about the redeemed of the work, um, the bit in between, I guess. And uh, I'm also going to sort of just take us on a bit of a journey. So what do I mean when I talk about work? Well, when I talk about work, I don't just mean the paid part. I know that this is what we touched on last week. When we hear the word work, we often think, oh, only the bits that we actually get paid for. But when God looks at what we do, he's interested in all the different sort of work that we do. So work is what you do at school, what you do at uni, uh, what you do at home, in your neighbourhood, in your community, as well as the stuff that you get paid for. And I want you to think also about your work context as well. Where has God placed you? What is the particular environment in which he's put you to have an influence on those around you? Uh, there was a visitor to Australia recently, Mark Green, and he would call it, what is your front line? Where is the front line? So when I talk about work and workplace, I, I want you to think about what's relevant to you in terms of what you do with purpose and intent and the context in which God has placed you. Now, one of the things that I, I touch on sometimes is this idea of food, uh, because that's the most basic sort of work that we have to do every day. We have to feed ourselves. We work to eat, and we eat to work. So food is something that reminds us that we do work. Now, in terms of getting food ready, for some of you it would be very basic. Um, I think for my son, food consists of a bit of bread, Nutella, done. Um, and he could do that for three meals in one day. Um, <laughs> for others, it's a much more elaborate sort of uh, arrangement. Um, one time, uh, my husband and I went to eat. Uh, we were invited out to dinner with some other people, and we each had to bring a course. And I was horrified at the end of each course. They, they had cards they gave out to us. We had to rate each course. I know. I never went back. Um, but anyway. <laughs> so... Uh, some people are more elaborate with the way they prepare food. But food reminds us that we need to work. And what I want to give you the idea, the metaphor today, is meals. We're going to go through five meals. So we're going to start in Genesis 1, and we're going to think about abundant food at the very first meal. Then we're going to talk about Genesis 3, a bad apple. Daniel 1, we're going to be spending a lot of time in there, and we're going to look at... Uh, a meal which was refused. Be careful what you eat. Then we're going to look at Jesus and the communion meal, a meal to remember. And we're going to finish up with the new creation, a banquet awaiting us. But let me just pray for us as we consider this. Dear Lord, please open our hearts, open our minds, open our spirits to receive what you have to give us. Please nourish us with your word. Amen. Excellent. So we start in Genesis 1. We start with the, the glory of God at work and creating everything. 
this was gone into a lot of detail last week, but I, I just want to sort of touch on this area. In some ways, we could say that we were created to work. It's a horrible thought for most of us, but actually, this is good work. This is working with God. God created us to work with him. And male and female, he created us to work equally. He appointed us as his vice regents, as it were. He gave us authority to look after the creation that he made. And although we often think as creation is finished off, you'll notice even here it talks about being fruitful and increasing and filling the earth, that we have a role of still working with creation, making new things like Grace's work and creating new music. So we have this image of working with God. And this is really important because around the ancient Near East at that time, there were all sorts of creation myths. And most of those creation myths involve gods creating human beings to actually be slaves for them. They say that humans were created to do the drudgery work that God didn't want, the gods didn't want to do. And that's a very different picture. It's a very different picture to what we see here. We have a God who delights in working with us, in working alongside us, and he invites us into his work, and he gives us authority over the work that he has made. This is something perhaps that we take for granted or something that we forget. And sometimes I, th I think we forget it because of the bad of work. But if you can imagine, what was that first meal like? God has created this place where there's um, fruitfulness, where there's abundance. I reckon that first meal, we don't know exactly what it was like, but I reckon it was pretty amazing. I reckon there was more food that you could possibly eat, and I think it was beautiful food and wonderful food. Because this is the nature of our God. He creates things to be, uh, to be very productive, to overflow. He's a generous God. However, that's not the way we see work, is it? Even though our work is good, even where we're made in the image of a God who takes delight in his work, even though God chooses to work with us and he wants us to use our work to serve him, frequently the way we see our work is like this. Um, this was a photo I just snapped at work last week. Um, <laughs> no, not really. Um, <laughs> but this is what work feels like sometimes, isn't it? You feel like you're under pressure. You feel like there's stress at work. Um, your work is not as good as you hope it would be. It's not um, a, a wonderful place. You don't see that abundance, that Genesis 1 picture at all. You see, we're actually living under the impact of that second meal, the bad apple. Evil came into this good working place, and what we're experiencing is the fruit of disobedience, that first disobedience. Now, work itself wasn't cursed. It was the ground that was cursed. It's the process of working that is cursed but we struggle with it and we're impacted by it. Not only is it hard to do our own work, in Genesis 4 we have a picture of another element of how sin plays out at work. So this is the story of Cain and Abel, those two brothers, and they came before God and they were offering their, God, their work to God as worship, which is basically the best thing we can do with our work. However, for some reason, Abel's work was more favoured by God. And here we see what we see in the workplace frequently, jealousy and competition. So Cain actually destroys Abel. I don't recommend you do that to your work colleague. But, <laughs> but we see that, don't we? That's sometimes the hardest thing about the work that we do, the working relationships that are hard where you struggle and it's painful. 
Now, something else that's interesting in Genesis 4 in that passage, God actually says to Cain before he does the deed, he says, sin is crouching at your door. And this is the reality of all the work contexts in which we have. It's often the place where we're tempted, where there's the opportunity to sin. And we need to be aware of that and wary of it. Bob Thune, who's an American pastor, has said this, it's important that we see both the goodness of work in God's original creation and the struggle of work under the fall. If we only see the good, we'll be frustrated when things don't go as they should. If we only see the bad, we'll have a hard time doing our work to the glory of God. Work is not all good and it's not all bad either. It's part of God's good creation, which has been tainted by the fall. And God is at work to redeem work. And we have a bit of a hint of that in the story that we heard beautifully read to us tonight, the story from Daniel and about Daniel. So I want to give you a bit of context to the story so you can uh, picture it a bit better. So this is set in the time when the southern kingdom of Israel is taken into captivity. The northern kingdom's already been taken over by Assyria. And then finally, the southern kingdom falls, Jerusalem is besieged, and then it happens. The unthinkable, Israel is captured. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, he was a ruler who was really wise. Most of the other ruling kingdoms at that time, what would happen is the Assyrians or the Egyptians, they would come in, they would take over somewhere, they would take all the gold and silver, and then they would leave some sort of military detachment just to keep the peace in that place. But Nebuchadnezzar, he had a cunning plan. He was going to make sure that these kingdoms stayed under his control and his authority. So what he did was, yeah, he took the gold and silver, don't worry, they always take the plunder. But he also took the best and the brightest of the people and he took them into his kingdom, into his palace, and he trained them up for three years. Now this did a couple of things. First of all, it meant that Israel didn't have those people anymore didn't have those intelligent, bright, beautiful, apparently handsome people (laughs) living there anymore. So they wouldn't rise up in rebellion. But also he now had all that intelligence and that drive and those young people now working for him in his kingdom. And it's really interesting the lengths that he goes to to actually get those people involved in his kingdom. He's going to instruct them in knowledge and skills and different things but he's also going to enculturate them. So he's going to teach them the language of Babylon. He's going to get them to read the literature of Babylon. And very importantly, he's going to try and get them to worship the gods of Babylon. Now, I don't know if you noticed in that passage, but something is going on that's uh, very interesting. We know that Daniel said no to the food, but there are other things that he didn't say no to. You notice that their names got changed. So Daniel and his mates, their names ended with E-L or A-H. And that signifies that they were actually dedicated to Yahweh, the one true God. But their names were changed and their new names actually signified that they were now dedicated to the Babylonian gods. Daniel didn't say no to that, but he did say no to the food. Why did he say no to the food? Well, for many years, the commentators thought that it was because that food had actually been already sacrificed to the Babylonian gods. But now we know a bit more about what the Babylonian diet consisted of. For one thing, when they had wine, they would add blood to it. 
Oh, you know, I was really hoping for a groan, but I guess <laughs> I guess you guys are up for a bit of blood in your drink. Uh, <laughs> that's actually really bad for a, an Israelite to have blood in their drink. But they also ate exotic animals, peacocks and all sorts of different exotic animals. And that too is a no-no under Israelite laws. So Daniel said no. You might have noticed in the passage he says he didn't want to be defiled. But I think something more was going on there as well. You see, Daniel would have known this passage of Proverbs, Proverbs 23. When you sit to dine with a ruler, note well what is before you. And put a knife to your throat if you are given to gluttony. Do not crave his delicacies, for that food is deceptive. You see, when you eat with someone, you're under an obligation to them. The longer that Daniel ate at the king's table, the more of an obligation he was under to Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, Daniel knew that there had been Israelite kings who had actually eaten with different rulers through the ages. And they'd done that to try and work out some sort of contract, some sort of agreement with those rulers to try and protect Israel. But of course, that had all come to naught. Israel was overrun. It hadn't worked. More than that, though, God was angry when they did that because that actually showed that they didn't trust him. Daniel made this stand because he wanted to show that he had complete trust in God and that he wasn't going to be under that sort of an obligation to Nebuchadnezzar. It was an important stand to make. And maybe there's an important stand that you need to make wherever God has placed you. Maybe there's something that you're aware of. Often in workplaces or in different front lines where we are, there are little things that go on that we feel like we need to be a part of for whatever reason. But there is often a time when we know in our heart of hearts that we need to make a stand. But Daniel also did excellent work. And this is very important. You might have noticed at the end of that passage that God gifted Daniel and his mates with all sorts of gifts. And they excelled. They were ten times better than anyone else. And as a result of that, they rose to positions of influence and power where they were. This excellent work that Daniel did continued. I don't know if you realise that he actually ended up serving under four kings and he excelled under four kings. I can't imagine many government rulers who would survive that long, but Daniel did. And we see in chapter 6 that there's another time when he actually is coming under pressure. Uh, Chapter 6, verse 3, if you want to follow. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. You might notice a few things about that short passage. One is that he did exceptional work. He was very good at what he did, so that he wasn't negligent in any way. He was competent. They couldn't find anything to criticise him for that. But the other thing they said was that they couldn't find any corruption in him. And I think integrity in our work is something really significant and really important. It's something that's actually often in short supply in some of the places where we might work. Have integrity about the work. Make sure that you can't be criticised for that. 
someone was telling me a story just from the last service of um, a guy who was working for a bank and he sort of got stitched up by some other people. They said that he had been involved in some nefarious activity and it even became quite public. But everyone who worked in Macquarie Bank said, oh no, he'd never do anything like that. They knew his character, they knew that he had integrity and they knew internally that there was no way that he would partake in any of that sort of activity. And eventually he was completely exonerated. Try and be the person about which people would say, oh, she would never do anything like that. <laughs> Have integrity. And I think uh, the third thing that I noticed about this passage is that they knew that the only way that they could actually undermine him was if they could somehow get an impact on his belief, his faith in his God. They knew that he was faithful to Yahweh. I think that's something else that's important for us. Do people know what motivates us? Do people know what we believe in? Do people know why we do excellent work? Why we work with integrity? Do they know that we are Christian? Do we know what is the basis for the good work that we do? It's a big challenge. So from Daniel, we understand the third meal, that we need to be careful what we eat. And by that, I mean be careful of the culture of the context in which you find yourself and make sure that you're different, you're distinctive in what you do. That passage reminds me of the second passage that we had read from 1 Peter 2. We should live such good lives and do such good work that people, when they see us, will actually give honour to God. That passage in 1 Peter 2 is actually headed something like uh, how to live amongst pagans. And actually, it's a reasonably good description of the world that we find ourselves in now. How can we live distinctive lives amongst pagans? How can we live good lives and do good work amongst the people around us? Now, the difference between Peter and Daniel is, of course, something that's happened in between, Jesus. And that's the fourth meal. Jesus has done his important, significant work. And the fourth meal is communion. It's a reminder of the work that God has done through Jesus. It's a meal to remember to remember Jesus and a meal to remember because it's a meal that lasts for all time and by which we still can live and work and move. Jesus has paid the price. He's redeemed us and we live on the other side of that. Yes, we're in this sort of now and not yet period, but actually we live in the light of knowing Jesus and that is an incredible inspiration for the work that we do. Having done that, I think we have an especially important role in how we live we can live as Daniels, um, and I think the image that I have of this as being embedded. Now, my first job was as a TV journalist, so I've particularly noticed in some of the wars that have happened recently that journalists are actually, they're described as being embedded with the armed forces. That means they go along with the armed forces, they're dressed the same, they look the same, but there's something different about them. They're there with a different purpose. Their purpose is to find out what's going on. The soldier's there to fulfil the mission that they're required to do, but the journalist is there to actually investigate and to describe what is happening. Their employer is different. So the soldier's employer is the line in the army, but the um, employer ultimately of the journalist is the editor of the TV station or the print or the radio station. And the outcome is different. Whereas the soldier is going to fulfil whatever mission that they've been given, 
the journalists, the output will be the stories that they write. And those stories are not supposed to show fear or favour. That's, I think, a really good picture of what we can be like in the different contexts that we're placed. Whether it's at school, at uni, in our neighbourhood, we're embedded there. We're Christians in those places. We have a different purpose in some ways to the other people. Yes, we've got to do whatever we've been asked to do, um, whatever work that we're required to do. But our ultimate purpose is to honour God and serve others. Our employer is actually God. Uh, Colossians 3.23 says, When you do your work, do it as unto the Lord, as if you were working for the Lord, not for human masters. And the outcome could be very different. One of the superpowers we have as Christians is that our identity is in Christ. It's not in the work that we do. And we have an amazing amount of freedom as a result of that. So how can we be these embedded redeemers wherever God has placed us? Well, we can be like Daniel and know the moment where we have to make a stand. I was talking to someone last week who told me he works for the council and he said at Smoko they often pass the phone around and on the phone is some image and he knows that he just averts his eyes and passes the phone along. And for him, that's his stand, that he's not going to participate in that activity, you know, even though they rib him about it. Oh, come on, have a look, have a look, check it out. He just says no. There are other stands that you may be required to make. I hope that God gives you the strength and courage when it comes. We should also do excellent work. Um, we should do work that actually gets people to ask us questions. And we should work for God. That is an incredible motivation. For one thing, it means that we're protected. Uh, We've got a higher aspiration than just about anyone else around us. But it also protects us if we have someone we work for that we don't particularly like. It's always a risky question, but has anyone here ever had a horrible boss? Yeah, yeah. Raise your hand. Come on, be proud. We've had horrible bosses. It's okay. (laughs) In fact, it's the number one reason why people leave jobs is a horrible boss. It's such a, 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 a thing that's so common that they made two hit movies about it. <laughs> I don't recommend you see them. Um, <laughs> we work for God ultimately as our employer and that sustains us even when the people around us let us down. And also we can do kingdom work. We can give people a bit of a taste of what the kingdom is like. Now, this can be all sorts of different things. Um, I had uh, this person, Phoebe, who's in Perth. She told me this story where uh, she got, went through Proverbs and got some wisdom, and she wrote them out, and she um, had them done in calligraphy, and she put them around her office. And her manager came in and was reading them. He said, wow, these are fantastic. So he said, oh, look, I want to take those and I want to make sort of really big artworks out of them. So he took them and he made these really big artworks out of them and he put them all around the boardroom and he said to her, where did these come from? And she said, oh, they came from an ancient sacred text. And he went, oh, that's just amazing. (laughs) And so now all these people come into the boardroom and they're surrounded by the Bible. And (laughs) I said to her, have you told them yet where it comes from? And she said, oh... She said she thought she'd give it a little while and then she'd let him know that the actual ancient sacred text was the Bible. But but that's an example of giving people a bit of a taste of the wisdom. The Bible may be a word that they scoff at, but when they taste the wisdom, it's something that's attractive. Maybe it's something else. I always think hospitality is a fantastic way of, of giving people just a sign of the kingdom. We know the kingdom is a very hospitable place. 
Maybe it's with beauty. Maybe it's uh, showing people that beauty is also something that might raise their eyes to heaven. So whatever it is, and ask God for imagination for that. How can you give people a taste of the kingdom? And every now and then we have the opportunity of being used by God to do something special. Now I can think of quite a few people I could give as an examples, but uh, keeping up with this food theme, I want to tell you about Rowan. See, Rowan uh, is in the fruit and veggie business. Uh, he went to take over this business, and before he took it over, he knew there were lots of problems with this business. This business um, had plant and equipment that was run down and terrible, but by far the more important problems was that he found out there were a lot more employees as part of their business that were, than were actually on the books. turns out that a lot of them were just paid in cash. They weren't actually acknowledged And then he also discovered that most of the business that was done with the markets was done involving bribery. Now, he knew that couldn't continue once he took over the business, but he also knew if he made too many changes too quickly, then the whole business would just fold and then no one would have any work to do. So he took on this business and he decided to make the changes uh, gradually. He managed to convince the employees that it was much better to actually be properly employed on contracts than just to be paid in cash, even though they didn't like paying tax. But he said, whenever you're sick, you'll be paid. And when you go on holidays, you'll be paid. And he said, it's a long way off, but eventually you're going to appreciate superannuation as well. So they agreed uh, to go on these employment contracts, and after a while, they really valued them. He told me there was one critical moment then when one of the employees got cancer. And uh, they were really worried about how they were going to look after their family. She was a single mum. And he said to her, you're one of my employees. I'm going to look after you. He said, I know the sick leave is so many weeks, but we'll get through this together. And that had a huge impact on the other employees. He noticed that immediately turnover started to uh, reduce. Because if you're just paid in cash, you don't owe anyone loyalty. But if you're an employee of an organisation with a contract, then there's a greater sense of loyalty. So the company started to turn around. Then he started to work on this whole bribery thing. At first, the people in the markets just laughed at him. They didn't think it was possible to do business if you didn't offer bribes. But he went along and he said, look, I am a man of integrity. I'll stick to my word. And he said, I want to do business with you, not for the short term, but for the long term. And I want both our businesses to actually um, to excel through the work that we do together. Well, eventually he started this and the people actually really liked it because once again it had been sort of, you didn't know whether you were going to have business or not if it just uh, relied on bribes because it depended on who was going to give the biggest bribe. But here they were with a regular arrangement with someone that they could trust. And so the whole business turned around. And in fact, it actually impacted on the industry. Employees in other companies said, we want to be paid by those people who work in that company because they began to see the benefits of that. Now, I know that he had a big impact, um, and I was able to tell him this because I went down to Melbourne and uh, lived there for a while, and I met someone who worked in the markets, in Victoria, uh, the Victoria markets. You may have heard of them. They're really well-known down there. And I mentioned Rowan's name, and this guy had heard of him, and he said that not only changed the industry up in Sydney, he said it's even impacted down here. So God used the work that he did and his business principles in a way that was influential, not just for his business, but for the whole industry. 
And every now and then God uses someone in a position of influence to do something amazing like that. I can also tell you that internally God has been doing an amazing work as well. Uh, Rowan employed a couple of um, asylum seekers uh, who, um, and one of them in particular is a Christian who is just an incredible evangelist and there's been all sorts of things happening. There's a mini revival happening on the shop floor. So God can do incredible things through the work that we do. And all of this anticipates the final meal, the fifth meal. The bad news is we're going to work in heaven. The good news is it's going to be amazing work. We don't know exactly what it'll be like, but we will be working with God. And curse will have no hold on us anymore, the curse of sin. We will eat with God and this banquet awaits us. How can we give people a bit of a taste of what that banquet is like through the work that we do? I hope you've got some imagination for that. Let me pray for us. Dear Lord, thank you that we have this opportunity to do work. I pray, Lord, that you will fire up our imaginations, that you will enable us to use our minds, our hearts, our spirits, our hands to do the work that you have prepared in advance for us to do. And I pray with this work, Lord, that we would honour you and we would serve others. Take us now, Lord. Show us the way that you have gifted us to do great things for you and help us to do everything we do this week, remembering that we work with you and that you work through us. Amen.